0: How about we don't try and make food perfect, because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome, but you also need to look at all
1: these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly.
0: The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order.
1: Get inspired by people fighting
2: to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello,
0: and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. Now, Americans consume a ton of food media these days, and I think many of us fantasize about how great it would be to be involved in writing about food for a living. But a lot of us don't really know how our favorite food media comes to be. Today's guests are here to shed some much-needed light and inspiration and share the work they've, they're doing to reinvent food media in the 21st century. They're the founders of Compound Butter, an exciting magazine about food and cooking, and I'm delighted to have them with us today. Jaya and Jessica, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi. Hi. Thank, Thank you, you so you much for having us.
0: It's great to have you both here. Really excited to dig into this. I'd love to start, I guess, kind of at the beginning. What made you decide to start a food magazine?
1: Well, um, so folks might not know, Jay and I are cousins. Um, so we've known each other our whole lives. Um, but I don't feel like we started really bonding until our early 20s, which was when I went to culinary school and she was in art school and we were talking a lot about you know everything um and specifically about like food media and um jam floundering here
2: <laughs> we, <laughs> like uh we had- well we, we started we well, obviously we've been cousins, but we hadn't really been close. And then when I was in art school and when Jesse moved back from Vancouver to San Francisco, we started hanging out more. And then we started kind of discovering each other's passions, which Jesse's was food and mine was art. Jesse was working as a chef and I was studying illustration <laughs> And we didn't really know too much about each other's passions, but we were really interested. And and Jesse kind of started showing me a lot of food media. I was I was always a little bit um, hesitant and uh, kind of um, afraid of food because I felt like I didn't have a place in it. I I, w- I like didn't I wasn't the strongest cook. I I, I felt like I it wasn't easy easily accessible for me. And Jessie definitely showed me that it was. And she introduced people to me like Anthony Bourdain and Jonathan Gold. And I kind of started to really realize that there's these amazing food writers out there and people making food really accessible. Uh, And then we had an assignment or I had an assignment in school to have a semester long project and it could be whatever I wanted to do. And Jesse and I had always bonded over Lucky Peach, which was still um, publishing at the time. And even though we loved it, that we still felt that there was just a lack of voices that we wanted to hear. It felt a little bit like a, a lot, like a boys club. Mm-hmm. We we There were things in it that we couldn't identify with and we thought could be talked about. So for this semester long project, I pitched to my teacher, like I, I would like to make a magazine with my cousin. Can I do that? Even though it was like a drawing class, he—I I guess I kind of gave him a good pitch, <laughs> huh. and he—he uh, he said, "Yeah, go ahead." So we decided on a theme for the first issue, which was junk food, because we thought it would be really open. And we had a lot of ideas just from our own love of junk food, and the first issue of CB was born in like a three month period. And it's kind of embarrassing to look back on it now because like <laughs> we wrote like everything ourselves. Yeah, I illustrated like almost every. Like it, just looking back on it now, it's like. It's silly to think of like, we had been reading magazines our whole lives, but for some reason when we had to make a magazine, we were yeah. <laughs> like, what? Like, what? Like so flustered. And like, we didn't know what we were doing, but that we that didn't stop us. We figured it out.
0: <laughs> Whoa. I love that interdisciplinary angle that it's like this kind of almost like a love letter. It sounds like between the world of art and the world of food and, and trying to kind of under each side, trying to understand the other side a little bit better.
1: Yeah, because I think the thing about Lucky Peach for me was it really opened my mind to so many different ways in which we interact with food. I grew up watching food sh- like Julia Childs, Martin Yan, all of that kind of things with my mom, reading her cookbooks, reading her food magazines. But everything felt very textbook. There wasn't that kind of like dynamic quality in food media. There was very specific ways of talking about food, looking at food. And so to see something so different was so exciting and really inspiring because it was sort of like, yeah, Jay and I totally could work on something like this together. You know, she doesn't have to be trained in cooking or even know how to talk about food to talk about food. And I think that was something that was exciting and has been a really great part of working on this magazine together. Mm -hmm.
0: Definitely. And what made you pick the name Compound Butter?
1: (laughs) God. We had so many names. <laughs> I was actually I was in Oaxaca, I think, with for culinary school, um, and we were FaceTiming, and I had a notebook where we just wrote down all like pages and pages, trying to kind of think about what were we trying to do and what name would speak to that. And then I think I finally was like, oh, compound butter is butter with other things mixed into it. Just like this is going to be a magazine about food. With other things mixed into it, and we were like, "Oh, yeah!" And it was that was it. It was that was the one. And we liked the word butter a lot. Yeah, too. we so love. we were, like, <laughs> yeah. like,
2: we were yeah. like, that's just butter. It sounds so fun to
1: say. It's my favorite yeah. food item. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, and I love the, the metaphor, you know, butter can be a vehicle of so many other flavors, like so many uh, flavor compounds are fat soluble. So butter and fats in cooking convey a lot like they speak more than just the butter, you know, there's all the different aromatics and spices and fun stuff you can put in there. And I think that's a very beautiful metaphor that food can be this lens, this window through which we can see so much other stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well said. you said it better than we've yeah.
1: said <laughs> <laughs> you guys ha- We're going to use hiring? that now. <laughs> yeah, I know. When <laughs> people ask
2: us, because we get that all the time, like, oh, why yeah. compa butter? So we'll just play that sound bite now.
0: <laughs> yeah. There we go. Amazing. <laughs> We're building new stuff live as we record. So yeah, cool. Yeah. I, I want to touch on uh, Lucky Peach a bit more because, uh, you know, that's a magazine that for me uh, growing up, like I was a line cook in a, in a former life and I found oh. Lucky Peach very inspiring and fun and whimsical and unlike any food media I had ever seen. But but I think this tension you bring up is interesting. You admired it, but you noticed a lack of representation in Lucky Peach. Can you elaborate a bit about what you mean there?
1: I feel like personally, that's something that I have felt most of my life in terms of my interactions with food media and most industries. I think there's yeah. always that idea of like looking up to something, seeing it, wanting to be a part of it, and knowing that that probably won't happen for reasons beyond your control most of the time, and especially with Lucky Peach, it felt it felt more attainable because it was more diverse uh, than a lot of traditional food media. But it's still very—it just there was something that was hard to put a finger on. I think back then because a lot of the things we talk about these days weren't as well articulated, so it was kind of hard to say why exactly it didn't feel like it was for us, but it it definitely felt that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Like I remember looking through Lucky Peach and just being amazed at how much illustration was a part of a food magazine. Cause I had just, whenever I would see food magazines and kind of look through them, it'd just be photography and kind of just photos of the dishes. But this was the first time that I was seeing illustration used to like describe feelings of food and illustrating food instead of photographing it. And that really attracted me to the magazine. But then, yeah, like Jesse said, it's kind of hard to say, just like flipping through it and reading like mostly men talking about food. It it was something that like just reminded me of like Jesse, our conversations at the time, because like I was in art school and the majority of my classes were women. There was more women than men in my school. But then when I looked at the art industry and the people that were kind of making more waves and like had bigger names it was mostly men and I always, always like what's happening to the woman that I'm going to school with and it's I feel like it's the same with culinary school with Jesse and like yeah <laughs> the people that are like getting more voice like being able to speak more or getting more positions or whatever getting more spotlight seem to be men in both of our industries even though we had known so many amazing women in art and food and their voices weren't really being shared as much. Mm
0: -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, when I was working in kitchens, it definitely felt like the majority of people I was working with were men. Actually, Mm -hmm. I did two of the first chefs I worked under were female chefs. And that was, for me, very formative and interesting. And I guess maybe set a different precedent. But I've heard from colleagues of mine that, the industry is still, you know, overwhelmingly male. It's still kind of a boys club. And I think it's changing. I think there's winds of change blowing through the food world. You know, the food world got rocked by me too, just like every other industry did. Mm -hmm. Um, But up until pretty recently, it was kind of this like, harsh masculine like dominate yeah. mm-hmm. uh, boys club they got to tough it out like show mm-hmm. you know and like not not like women can't like tough it out but like it very much um modeled these like masculine virtues and had men in the spotlight and had these like very like just it felt like a very male energy so that is interesting that for for folks writing about food you could see that getting reflected but then it obviously that that's not everybody in food and and mm, yeah. i think that's really important to underline
1: yeah. Definitely. I mean, I even in culinary school all but one of my teachers was a woman. Or I mean, yeah, sorry, all of all but one of my teachers were men. Hmm. Um there were very few of us in the program and even within that program the teachers were great, but there was still an attitude among a lot of the men in the program that like we couldn't hack it. Most of the jobs that I worked when I was in food were under men um and you know, some of them were really great. I had some really great bosses that were really thoughtful and really wanted to make sure the kitchen was like an inclusive space where everyone was happy. And then there were other places where I was one of very few women and it was just really aggressive. And I had to push really, really hard. I felt like to get... Not even respect, but just to be kind of considered on their level, hmm. and I think that that has definitely carried over into other aspects of the food industry, food media because it's, it's it's less obvious in some ways because you don't you don't see that aggression as outward, you know, but it's 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 present still, I think for sure,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's important. Uh, you know, which voices are represented, and also you know, in the kitchen, like which voices are quite literally the loudest. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. so if it's all male chefs, like those those are the voices. I think I think that's super important. What you're raising awareness about. Yeah, you know, I'm curious to hear. Like, what is it like to run a food magazine in 2020? Like, what are some of the biggest challenges, and what are some of the joys of the job?
2: Yeah, it's hard to describe. 2020 has just been a crazy year.
0: (laughs) I know. I was about to say, I feel like 2020 (laughs) 2020 and Joy haven't shared the same sentence since the year began.
2: (laughs) I think think, uh, because compound butter, I mean, it's not our full-time job. We should say that it's like very important. Yeah. We, we want it to be like known that, like, we do compound butter as, as a side project. We both have other jobs. So, there's often times where, you know, we'll have worked a full day and then we'll be doing compound butter stuff at night mm-hmm. or in our personal time on the weekends, you know, like it, it really bleeds into our life and every aspect. But, um, because we've always been balancing it that way. I think like with 2020, especially, it's like we learned how to balance it with everything going, like with our lives and all this stuff going on. And now in 2020, like even more so there's more distractions and awfulness and, and things kind of taking our attention, but because of the years of us balancing it and working on top of other projects with, with it, like, I think we, it is still challenging, but we've, we've kind of learned how to handle it a little bit but
1: I think we're lucky too because we always have kind of done it long distance or at Mm -hmm. least when it started I still lived in the bay area up until a couple years ago so for years it was just something that we were handling via the phone text google docs all that kind of stuff so that that's been that's that's been an easy transition for us at least yeah for a long
2: time I feel like for most of compound butter, we are not in the same room working together yeah. and we don't have an office. So like working at home hasn't been any different, you know, like we're used, yeah. we're kind of used to all that in a way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So you you had been doing it remotely before all of this madness started. Mm So having to do it remote with COVID actually hasn't been that big of a change?
1: No, No. luckily. (laughs) It's been harder in terms of like for the most recent issue that came out, um, we had a few photo shoots that were going to be a part Mm -hmm. of the issue that had to get canceled because people couldn't get to their studios. So I think in the long term, it would be harder for our contributors Mm -hmm. than for us because anyone that needs to be able to go on location or anything like that, it's a lot a lot harder obviously to do right now.
2: The the our latest issue, we just released our fantasy issue and and we had started it in January but um, because of COVID, we did lose a lot of content. So it is our smallest issue, which was something that like, we always try to hit a certain page count and it was kind of difficult mentally to put out an issue that didn't hit that page count. Cause we know how, like, we just want to get the most for our subscribers, the most for our you know, we just, we want to, yeah. we want to try and share as much as we can. So it was hard not to do that, but then we just kind of had to tell ourselves like, like we did what we could.
1: (laughs) COVID, baby. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) We didn't want to force it. Like we wouldn't anyway, but like it was completely understandable that we lost that content. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Got to roll with it. And and what, what are some of the, the joys of the job in terms of putting together food media?
1: Um, I mean, we've made so many incredible connections and friendships through doing this magazine. Um, like, the people we get to work with—we've had contributors email us. I still Jay and I talk about this all the time. Um, one of our friends who emailed us their portfolio, and we opened the email and we're like, "Is this a joke? They're so good. Why do they want to be a part of our magazine? Like, yeah. it seemed so beyond anything that we had, anything we were doing, you know, at that time, anyways." And I feel like every issue we just that keeps happening, we'll just have these incredibly talented people reach out and want to work with us or be a part of the magazine. And that's just such a blessing, really. Like it's, it's really amazing. That's I think my favorite part.
2: Yeah, definitely all the the connections and the relationships we've made, like working on a magazine, especially like we're such a small team. It's Jesse and I, and then we have an an editor who isn't really helping us all the time. He's kind of more coming on towards the end. Um, and like, you kind of feel like in a, well, just like maybe isolated, the process is isolating. You're working on yourself and you're like at at for months and you're like, is this good? Like (laughs) we like it, but like, is it good? And so it's, it's very validating to have the issue out there and then get people's response and it never gets old every single time it's it's extremely rewarding to see that people are like identifying with the content we're putting out that people are enjoying it that our contributors are happy like yeah. that's what i care about most of all like honestly like when there's when we're like coming home from working and i'm tired and i don't really want to have to design a feature i think about how our contributors are looking forward to this issue and looking forward to their story or their illustration being published and i'm like i you got to do it for them yeah like it has to be out there for them
1: yeah yeah thinking about all the things that we would have wanted to do and didn't have a platform for being able to kind of have that for other people is that's pretty rewarding yeah that's that's a really
0: nice sentiment that spirit of spirit of compassion and giving other people a platform it sounds like
1: it's just i mean yeah we obviously we Enjoy doing it and everything yeah. too, you know. And it's it feels really great to have a physical issue in hand. But it does. I mean, I guess it does feel really good just to be able to share that mm-hmm. with other people. I guess there's nothing wrong with saying that. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great. I love I love our contributors, and it's it's really amazing to have a collaborative magazine like this. It's really fun.
2: It's it's very inspiring because also like every time we we do a call for submissions, we release a theme, and Jesse writes like a little description. And we have like an idea of what the theme is, but then it's always really interesting to see the submissions come in and see how people interpret it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's made our magazine more inclusive and more open and more interesting because we're, instead of just like our vision directing it, we're letting our contributors pitch how they interpret it Mm -hmm. and, there's things that get pitched that we would have never even thought of when you're thinking of the word, like uh, childhood or whatever, you know, like there's things that come in that we're like, Oh, this is so amazing that they're going to write about this. Like we never would have thought that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic.
0: That's really cool. You know, talking about kind of unexpected surprises here, are there any things that you think would surprise people about what it's actually like to put together a food magazine?
1: I mean, (laughs) It's not glamorous. No, it's not glamorous. (laughs) Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, we don't make any money. No, the costs, I think, would surprise people. Yeah, I think that's what, the the amount of work that goes into it and the lack of return. Yeah. You know, you, so, yeah, I think that would probably be the thing that's the most surprising for people.
2: Yeah, like, it's so easy to be like, I have an idea, and it's so easy for people to tell you, like, you should do this, but Mm -hmm. then, like when we've like kind of gone into like finding different things, different avenues, like getting stocked on more shelves, getting a distributor, all these things, it's like we were so unaware of the cost of everything and the, the lack of return Mm -hmm. of it. And that's why we've kind of kept everything so small because we're kind of operating within our budget, within our reach, like, Mm We don't want to extend ourselves too far that the whole thing would collapse because yeah. we couldn't handle it. Yeah, it's kind of a very slow yeah. burn for us. Yeah, very slow. Keeps yeah, thing, keep things manageable. -hmm. Because we're also like we're Jesse and I are the ones shipping every order Mm -hmm. and taking it to the post office. Like it's so funny we get people like emailing us like, "Can I speak to your fulfillment person?" Or like, like, "Can I speak to your wholesaler?" This (laughs) that it's like us, baby. We're (laughs) we wear many hats. Like it's all of us. So like we have to every closet's full of magazines. Yeah, (laughs) like that's our storage space. Like like everything that every action that we take, we have to think about. Can we handle? it because we don't want to promise anything that we're going to fail on or, yeah. you know, that that's like, I feel like at least like one of my worst fears with it. I know Jesse's mm-hmm. really concerned with it too. We've had a lot of talks about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would never want to let down our contributors or anyone that's kind of been emotionally invested in the magazine or anything like that either. You know, there's just a lot of people that have been a part of it and we wouldn't want to blow it on yeah. trying to do too big too fast or anything like that, you know? Yeah, like yeah. bottom
2: line, we're we're printing like a hundred page plus full color magazine and mm-hmm. that kind of that costs a lot of our budget every time and we just want to make sure that we have enough to print. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. As you're saying that, it sounds really analogous, actually, to, I think, a lot of people's dreams versus reality of opening a restaurant.
1: Yep. Mm. Yeah, Like, a, a lot of people, <laughs> I,
0: I mean, this is just coming from, like, you know. at one point, I dreamed of opening a restaurant. I, I ran a food cart in college. I've known a lot of people that have wanted to talk to me about, well, Riley, like, you worked in food. How do I open a restaurant? And the thing I always want to tell them is, like, it's less glamorous than you think just work in the industry. But then, mm-hmm. in terms of opening a restaurant, it's like, having a recipe and some good ideas in terms of stuff in the kitchen is, like, one- tenth of it maybe like it's probably closer like two two or three percent of it it's like then you add on do you know about like liquor laws do you know about insurance and hiring staff and sourcing Mm. ingredients and (laughs) Uh, you know all of these layers, the complexity of actually monetizing your food idea. It's uh, yep. it's, people it's don't quite know. humbling. Yeah.
1: yeah, people don't know that if once you hit the height of like chef, chef, you're not in the kitchen anymore. Yeah, you're ordering, you're doing labor. Like there's just so much paperwork that goes yep. into running a restaurant or running any business. It's
0: yeah, yeah. Did, did you did you two read? Um, was it Gabrielle Hamilton of Prune wrote this op-ed in the New York Times Magazine about shutting her restaurant due to COVID? Did you did you two read that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. was heartbreaking. Yeah. It was heartbreaking, but it was... also it felt necessary. Do you know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's so many people that they they love food, you know, they love eating out and all of that, but they're so, they're sticklers, you know, for the price. And there's so much there's so much external criticism of how much something costs, food or a magazine or any of that, you know, and so... Little actual experience with what it takes to even get that food on the plate or the magazine on the shelf there 's so many things going on back there and i hope I hope so many I hope people read that article and think about it but i don 't know it's This has been such a intense period of time, obviously in so many ways, but watching the food industry crumble has been really it's terrible, but it is, yeah, in some ways necessary too, because it was not sustainable. You know, thinking about, I've been doing a food pop-up and people have always been like, you should open a restaurant you can open a restaurant, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how that would ever happen. You know, I can't ever imagine being able to hire someone or pay like a lease, you know, it's just, yeah, it was, that was a brutal piece. It was really, it was sad because even to me, I was a bit naive, you know, I looked at, people like that, or, you know, Poc Poc or Momofuku, any of those big, big chefs, big names thinking they'll make it through this. Like they're going to be okay. And they're having to close too. And it's like, it's, we're barely hanging in there, you know? and Yeah. yeah. We've seen that, like,
2: we've seen that also with independent magazines or other magazines too. Like that kind of sends like shockwaves in the independent magazine community too or just like publishing when you see like big magazines close or other indie mags like us closing and stuff like that and like and like um when we first started the magazine we had people commenting on the price of it it was even lower than it was now like we had to raise it a little bit as issues got bigger but for our first i think like three four issues like people would kind of scoff at the price yeah and it was and,
1: like I think ten or twelve dollars maybe. Uh, yeah, I think we
2: were doing it that it was cheap so at So low. Time. So we yeah. were
1: barely even covering our printing barely. costs. Yeah.
2: yeah. We were like because we had we were really doing it low because we also now we have more confidence and like pride and stuff, but we were trying to we were trying to get more people to read it. And we like mm-hmm. it made us question things, but you know, luckily now like people are getting subscriptions and ordering more and yeah. we feel like confident in our price, but it definitely was like people were commenting at it at the time.
1: And like thinking about Lucky Peach, it was almost a relief to see that they had folded because of created differences <laughs> yeah. and not because of financial difference, because we yeah. were thinking like, oh my God, they look like they're doing so well, mm-hmm. you know, they were huge. And you know, they also had other verticals. They're doing all kinds of different media stuff. They had books. So who knows how much money actually the magazine was making. But at least for us, that was sort of like, okay, it wasn't because they were wildly successful and still couldn't yeah afford to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: You, you, you both bring up an interesting point, which is how do you get people to be willing to pay for content which is like the kind of the the crux of a lot of these questions and i'm just curious to hear your take on that because that's something i've heard from a lot of people in food media that it's this weird thing of people are just used to getting food content for free and they act shocked and it's like people ask them to pay even a small amount for a magazine or a recipe you know access to online content like how do you change that paradigm
2: i can speak to that with her art too (laughs) oh yeah like because i'm a freelance illustrator uh it's, it, it, I, Jesse has to like bear the brunt of me complaining about that stuff a lot just because like (laughs) art, art and like content and writing, it's like, it's, especially during COVID times, it's so... It's always important, but especially during times like now, where it's like we need it more than ever, and like people are always consuming content. People are always like TV, like everything is like art in a way, but people don't want to pay for it. They take it for granted, or they're like, "I could do that myself." It's like, mm-hmm. "Well, you didn't. You're not going mm-hmm. to."
1: And like, you can't. And you can't. <laughs> yeah, you can't. <laughs> like, That's real. But yeah. like, I don't
2: think. Like people see like a physical piece, and they they scroll through this magazine. They see like the paper, and they're like, "You're like this is how much," but they don't. They're not thinking about how many hours were put into it, mm. how much time we spent putting into it, our contributors, like the hours and the years that it took refining and honing our skills to get to the point where we could do this. And yeah. they just they just look at, I don't know. It, I I can't understand that my mindset really, but.
1: I hope it changes. I mean, I think I I was definitely guilty when I was younger of like looking at something and if there was a paywall I was annoyed and I was over it. You know, mm-hmm. like I was so used to especially for food media watching stuff on TV which wasn't free my parents were paying for cable but I had no concept of that you know so I grew up thinking like oh yeah I can just watch whatever like f- the food network and I can just go on people's cooking blogs and like I don't need to buy magazines or I don't need to pay this person for writing this thing you know like why would I s- pay subscribe to someone's website or newsletter when I can find everything that I want just on the internet for free and I feel like that mindset has become very pervasive, especially with food media, because there was such a big trend in food blogs and like public access, food TV, that you don't, for a lot of people, it's not a hobby, you know, Mm -hmm. and like that is how they're trying to make their living and getting that across to people that don't, that aren't in those industries, I think can be really difficult because it's hard to imagine paying someone to tell you how to cook something if you've never done it before, but at the same time you go to a restaurant and pay someone to cook it for you. So there's not that big of a gap there.
0: Yeah. It's definitely an ongoing effort. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I do feel like the standards are starting to change. Like people definitely are starting be- to be willing to invest in media. And I think, you know, folks like the New York Times have just made it commonplace now that like if you want to read their content online, you only get a certain amount of free articles and you gotta pay mm-hmm. for it. And yeah, if you don't I like that, that, like read something else, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of brutally harsh, but on some level I think necessary.
1: Yeah, I think it's really forcing people to kind of re examine what they're consuming and what the value of that is, because I think you have to see that there was a dip in content in the free content after a while and think, oh, this isn't good enough. And it's not good enough because people aren't getting paid to make it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that helped. Absolutely. You
0: know, you two have spoken candidly on your Instagram about racism in the food industry. I'd be curious to hear a bit about, you know, what type of changes do you hope to see in food writing to be more inclusive and anti-racist in the future?
1: So I'm half Burmese, and the first ever Burmese cookbook I saw um, was written by a white woman. (laughs) And, like, there is so much of that in food media. And, again, it's it's not overt, you know. Like, you wouldn't – my automatic thought wasn't like, oh, this is weird, until I really thought about it later. You know, and I think about the shows that I grew up watching and the people that I grew up reading about – and there's just, even, you know, you look at Southern chefs, who's famous for cooking Southern food, Sean Brock and a bunch of other white guys. And it's like, it's, it's frustrating to spend a lot of time thinking that your food isn't good enough, or you're not good enough, or you're not interesting, and then see someone else, usually a white person, get to write about it, get to represent your culture to the world um, and I just really hope that that's something that especially after everything you know that's going on with Baba bon Tea and people kind of pointing that out a lot more I hope it changes because I've heard people that have pitched their own culture you know I mean like I want to write about Filipino food I want to write about you know like Latino it's so many different dishes that they want to write about things that they've experienced they get shot down and then it gets picked up later by someone else that's not yeah. from that culture and I really hope that a lot of these bigger food brands can lead that charge because I feel like a lot of indie magazines have tried to be more mindful of that I know we've been more mindful of that um, but a lot of that change needs to be represented on a broader scale for it to be meaningful yeah
0: No, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. I think that's really important. Uh, You know, growing up, I I really loved Mexican cuisine. And a friend gave me um, The Essentials of Mexican Cuisine by, um, what's her name, Diana Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. But as I got older, I looked at it as like, it's really weird that this British white woman is literally the ambassador of an entire Mesoamerican cuisine that's thousands of years old. Like, how did she Mm -hmm. get to be... The Her messenger, Rick, Rick Bayless, and Rick like, Bayless,
1: and and I mean, yeah.
0: no shade to them. I think they're both. I think they both mean well. You know, it's not like overtly racist, but it's yeah. like it's really problematic when you start to unpack it. And I, I'm glad you're bringing attention to this because because I'm grappling with it too. And I, I hope it's something that all of us can just be. Um, I guess a bit more like food media literate when we're looking at something, you know, like, who's writing this? Why Mm -hmm. are they the storyteller of it? Are there there other voices I'm not hearing because this person's getting to talk? And Mm -hmm. they're really hard and often uncomfortable questions, but...
1: It's a hard conversation to have. I mean, especially because I've talked with folks that have written about other cultures, food, you know, and gotten pushback about it. And I think it's one, I think it's really hard to get called out about something like that, you know, and so I would understand being defensive. And two, I think it's, it's difficult to be like, I'm interested in something. So why shouldn't I get to talk about it? You know, but at the same time, it's like, I've lived my whole life watching other people talk about me, like I'm not here. So why shouldn't I get to talk about it now? You know, why shouldn't I get to tell my own stories? And so I feel like those two kind of butt heads, because you'll have people who are, Mad about feeling underrepresented or underrecognized and then people who feel defensive because they don't they don't understand how it's wrong for them to tell those stories so it's 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 difficult but i I do appreciate that people are a lot more open to those conversations, and I feel like a lot of those changes are hopefully happening in food media um And I hope we can get to a point where I loved Anthony Bourdain. I love Jonathan Gold, but I hope we get to a point where we don't need a white guy to go to a Chinese restaurant for other people to be like, Oh yeah, Sichuan food is good. You know, I mean, it was great, but it is, it's frustrating to have to have that kind of like ambassador to bring people to these foods that have been looked down upon otherwise or avoided, you know, out of being different. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, really well said. You you, uh, you two decided to donate a portion of the proceeds from this past June's magazine to organizations focused on advancing, protecting, and supporting Black lives. I'd love to hear a bit about what motivated this decision and which organizations did you decide to support?
1: Well, I think we for a long time we were kind of keeping our personal politics out of compound butter because it was just kind of like this is just a fun project we work on on the side you know and it's become more clear anyways that that's not not that it's not fun you know but that food and our magazine don't exist in a vacuum um and especially after you know the murder of George Floyd and everything else that was coming out with police brutality. It was all things that we knew existed. You know, it's all things that we have been aware of, have been upset about, but it was sort of clear at that point that not doing anything and not saying anything about it was unacceptable uh, for us personally. And just, I think professionally for any brand, you know, it was like we needed to be clear about where we stood And we needed to make move beyond just saying that we were upset about it and do whatever we could. You know, we don't make money on the magazine, um, but you know, because of COVID, we're not going to be tabling anywhere. So we didn't have to pay our tabling fees. And a bunch of the stores that usually stock us are closed. We don't have to pay shipping fees. So we had a little bit of money left over. And then we also just kind of did some math and we're thinking we can do this, you know, and we should do this, even if it's going to put a little bit of a squeeze on us. It's the least, the least we can do really to kind of try and support these causes. So we looked more specifically for organizations, a few that were local to LA. Um, so we did, Everyone In, which is with United Way, and they're working um, on homelessness in Los Angeles. And that's really accelerated, obviously, right now um, to trying to get people off the streets during COVID. Um, We donated to the Okra Project, which is working specifically on feeding Black trans members of the community. We are patrons now of For the Culture magazine, which is a magazine specifically for Black chefs, Food writers, um, and oh, I have my list. But.
2: Oh, and we become patrons for Authority Collective, mm-hmm. which is an organization for um, Black women
1: photographers mm-hmm. and people, yeah, Black and other women and femmes of colors. Yeah, photography. Um, Chefing while Black, which is also going to be a uh, Black focused food network. Yeah and the ACLU SoCal.
0: Wow what a what a buffet of resources I love this definitely going to add those to the show notes uh, if folks want right. to support they, you know, they definitely should yeah. really appreciate you raising awareness about that you know in terms of uh, folks in the food world I'm, I'm curious to hear who are some of your favorite cookbook authors and food writers?
1: Uh, Tejal Rao. Yeah, I love Tejal. I love Andrea Nguyen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's incredible. I have so many of her cookbooks. They're so fun to cook out of. And it's so accessible. She's Vietnamese food. Um, Man, there's so many really great people writing really interesting stuff. And it's... It- This might be like a self plug, but we, one of our friends,
2: uh, Jordan Castle has written for us in every single issue. And I am, I am always constantly blown away with the pieces that she writes. She writes poetry, she writes like uh, fiction, Mm -hmm. like everything. And she's just written some, some like really beautiful pieces. And I always look forward to reading them.
1: Yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people at the LA Times, um, mm-hmm. obviously, besides Peter, that are writing really <laughs> incredible things, Bill Addison, Master um, Sang, there's just, there's a lot of really good food media coming out of LA. Oh, I love mm-hmm. um, Soleil Ho, too, from San Francisco, mm-hmm. love all, everything that she writes about. Um, cookbook authors man, I'm staring at my cookbooks. They're all across from me, but they're too far away for me to read <laughs> everyone's names. But, oh, and Hetty from Peddler. Oh, yeah. Love Hetty. There's, yeah. I mean, Steven from Whetstone. I, it's yeah. hard because too, there's, it's like a food writers or f- slash food media, you know, it's like, there's, I mean, um, Sana from Diaspora Co. obviously is incredible doing like really amazing stuff and her spices are, fantastic um I love Guy Fieri (laughs) (laughs) yeah so (laughs) that's that's like a hot take these (laughs) days I love I love Guy Fieri I grew up watching his show and I think he it always made me so happy that his show was just about raising other people up and that it's still about that and I just have always really loved that his personality has just been super positive I've seen articles from people that are like every time our episode comes on, we have a huge boost in sales. It's been like Hmm. an amazing thing that happened. And so I just, I love (laughs) Kaffietti. Yeah. (laughs) He's great too.
2: Yeah. I think... I, I depend on, like, my cookbooks always come from Jessie. She always gives me the greatest stuff. She, the la- The last one I think you gave me was Vegetables Unleashed.
1: Oh, yeah. Ooh. Jose Andreas' cookbook. Yeah, that was a it's good insane. one. It's insane. I don't think we'll ever cook anything out of it, but it's <laughs> so fun. It's so much yeah, fun. Yeah, but the cover, <laughs> I opened it. She
2: gave it to me for Christmas, and I opened it up and, like, saw the cover, and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> he's, like, smell. What is he? Oh, he has, like, a bouquet of carrots mm-hmm. that he's, like... Yeah, he's smelling. smelling. And it's funny <laughs>
1: because apparently the cover he wanted is him, like like buried in the dirt with them too, like smiley, just surrounded by vegetables. It's so much fun. It's such a cool book. Wow. Yeah. That's,
0: that's such a dubious praise for a book. I don't know if I'd ever cook anything from it, but I love it.
1: <laughs> well, that's it. I love Yotam and Delengi too. And I have like, I have Jerusalem. I have plenty, I have plenty more. And they're beautiful cookbooks. They're incredibly inspiring. I don't cook out of them very often because yeah. it's just a lot of stuff involved in each each recipe but it's still it's just I just love seeing other people's takes on things too and other recipes Mm -hmm. and ingredients that they work with so even if I'm not necessarily going to make it that doesn't mean I'm not excited about it and don't want to see it
2: yeah
0: I think Odolenghi was very self-aware though because I had heard that critique actually from family members that love his cooking, but they're like, the ingredients list is so esoteric. Mm-hmm. It's like three rose petals and two teaspoons <laughs> yeah. of nast- nasturtium extract or something. Mm-hmm. You're just like, where yeah. do you get this? But
1: he- Give it a he, kiss before yeah, yeah. you put <laughs> it in the oven. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: and it, if, you, if you follow the recipes, because I, follow, I followed a couple of his and actually they turn out beautifully. Like they're Wonderful. delicious if you're willing mm-hmm. to go to the lengths. Um, but I, I think he's self-aware of that because his newest book, is called simple right Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and it's actually great and i have picked out of that one yeah because he's like okay now i'm only gonna make you find seven ingredients (laughs) instead of 20 you know but it's still it's good because it's funny too because his dishes will look when you make something from it you're like wow that took me like five hours but it looks like just a beautiful salad yeah. And you'll serve it to someone and they're like, "Oh, this is so nice." Like, "How, how did you just whip this up?" And it's like, <laughs> "No, I did not." <laughs> so simple is nice, but it's still there's still a level of definitely like not simpleness involved, but I like it. I appreciate. It. I think he's I think he knows. I think he knows, yeah. which is great too.
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, what do the two of you like to cook at home?
2: Um, I Jesse cooks more than I do, but I love to bake. I like baking a lot more than cooking savory dishes. Uh, So oftentimes when I have like an extremely small kitchen and it gets so hot (laughs) when I have (laughs) the oven on, but um, I love to go in there and make cakes. I make like whenever, like I eat a lot of fruit and then whenever like there's fruit leftover that goes bad, I usually use it for something like banana bread or like tarts or whatever. But um, I usually like to bake sweet, dishes a lot more. And then um and then the past couple of years uh I've been vegetarian, so I kind of learned how to incorporate incorporate tofu into a lot more dishes, which has been like I used to kind of be meh about tofu, but now I love it. I had tofu for dinner last it night. It was the best. It's the best. Like yeah. it's so good. And then uh just trying to I'm trying to be more creative with dishes without meat too and finding like solutions for that has been challenging but also uh it's it's very rewarding when in the end like you manage to make a good dish. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of great options without meat but yeah. it's always nice.
1: Yeah, I I wing it a lot. Um I you could ask Eric, my partner. I'm definitely guilty of kitchen sinking it quite often <laughs> for our meals, but that's I the way,
0: That's the way to cook, I think.
1: <laughs> it's kind of like, ah, oh, got to use this up. Here we go and a really fun part. Of fun part, uh, fun part of quarantine, I guess, has been um, all of these kind of local farms that used to just be supplying uh, restaurants are now offering produce boxes to general consumers. So, I've been picking up a couple of those at least once or twice a month, and that is really. F- I mean, it is fun because it's like, here's a grab bag of vegetables that I never necessarily would have bought myself. You know, I don't even know what some of it is. I have to Google it or DM them on Instagram and be like, what is this? Um, And then just kind of riff on what I get. But in general, I think I definitely lean towards more Asian flavors. I have a lot of, I have like Sichuan cookbooks, green cookbooks. Um, I love making a lot of kind of different regional Chinese food. And I also really like making pizza. Mm-hmm. My oh, yeah, aunt Jessie me. makes great pizza. She got a pizza oven, like what like Jay's mom bought me a pizza oven my for my birthday. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> like one of the little like an uni, a pellet stove. And that thing is it gets up to like nine hundred degrees and it's yeah. the best. It's so much fun. Um and my mom gave me a sourdough starter actually last year that has been getting a lot of use so we definitely make a lot of bread make a lot of pizza but trying to get better about being more vegetable forward too because working in the food industry i'm sure you know riley there's days when you're like i've been cooking all day and i never want to cook again yeah i'm just gonna eat like garbage for a couple of days and then you crash hard and yeah go have a salad <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah
0: Absolutely. I love that you brought up the uni oven. A fun fact, I'm the only one of my three siblings, uh, or there's three of us, I'm the only one of the siblings that does not have an uni oven. Both, oh. <laughs> my, both my older siblings have them. They're obsessed. My dad bought one. You should uh, probably get one. I, maybe I need to invest. I'm I'm curious, uh, Jesse, in your experience, what is the key to good pizza at home? I mean, with or without the uni oven. I, I know an uni lets you get up to really high temps, so sure. it's like perfect for crust. But
1: I think the most important thing is do not put too much stuff on your pizza. Yeah, that is like the hardest. That was hard for me. I used to overload my pizzas, you know, and then you've got that big wet spot in the middle because all the like moisture's running in there. So don't overload your pizza. Get your oven as hot as you possible kiss. can be. Yeah, give it a kiss before <laughs> you put it in there. Um, if you're gonna make a lot of pizza, get a pizza peel. It
2: yeah. just
1: makes your life a lot easier than trying to like slide it off a flipped over baking sheet, which I've done, or use parchment paper. Um, yeah. And uh, you don't have to worry about your dough as much as you think you do. I buy it from Trader Joe's sometimes, and it's so good. It just needs to be like it just needs some extra proofing time. Let it sit at room temperature till it's super soft, and then you know you don't have to be so delicate with it. I think that's that's what I've learned too. You can throw it around. It's like the movies.
0: <laughs> Excellent tips. Uh, what's next for compound butter?
2: We're uh, start working on our next issue. Yeah, we're going to announce the theme for our next issue soon, sometime mm-hmm. this month, uh, mm-hmm. and then we're going to open up for submissions, and then hopefully we'll have that issue out in the fall, if all goes well. Um it would be really something that we've talked about, too, is getting more in, into CB merch. That would mm-hmm. be something fun, too, in the future to kind of expand. Because right now we have, in our, in our online shop, we just have magazines and some enamel pins that um, our friend Alicia designed. And that those are like a couple of years old now at this point so like we least, would definitely, yeah, yeah we definitely like to get into like tote bags and other merch mm-hmm. maybe some um, hats. hats yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah jesse loves yeah. hats i love that
1: love a good hat <laughs> uh yeah, yeah but um yeah i think yeah working on our next issue And I think definitely with all of the kind of anti-racist work going on, making sure that we are really holding ourselves accountable for that too. um, And continuing to push on inclusivity and diversity in our magazine. Because for our upcoming issue, we were already kind of talking about features. And a lot of what instantly came to mind was still white people. (laughs) So we're like, we got to work on that. That's something Mm -hmm. that we definitely want to want to be super mindful of in the future yeah
0: no I appreciate you bringing that up that's important it's something top of mind for us honestly at the podcast too like our, our first run I guests like we, that was like we put together this epic list and then it, like I looked at it and then looking especially looking back in the episodes we did they're great episodes it's like it's a very white list and so with yeah. this new wave we're doing this year it's a really trying to prioritize diversity and using this platform to, to get, just get more diversity and give, give folks a voice that might not otherwise, you know, be able to reach people. And it's, it's important. And it's a yeah. constant journey. Like you brought up, like it's not just a one and done thing. You always have to be thinking about like, who is, mm-hmm. who is speaking? Who am I giving the yeah. platform to whose yeah. story is being told and whose stories is not being heard right now. So.
1: And we hope we can get to the point where, you know, we have been doing the work enough that it's not our default, anymore you yeah, know we have yeah. a diverse enough like rolodex that our first mind you know we can have our first thought be a person of color or you know it's just lots of work all the time but it's great we appreciate that you're doing that too it's yeah. awesome. it's
0: team team effort and uh, i'm just i'm glad it seems to be like a, the zeitgeist right now in the food world yeah. is like how can we talk about diversity inclusivity and not just talk about it but actually put things into place mm. or change is happening so i I I love that you're thinking about that i love that you're bringing attention to that through your platforms i'm excited to see the new issue i assume you're not going to tell me what the theme is it's too early
2: i mean we can like we can can talk about about it yeah Yeah, we're probably we're probably
1: going to announce it soon anyway when is this episode coming out
0: this will air in like a week or two so it might be out by then anyway i don't know no pressure
1: yeah no it's cool i mean it's very it's a very fitting topic um Mm -hmm. we're doing comfort oh fun Amazing. Yeah, because yeah.
2: So. We, we tried to think about, too, like something that could apply to this year and what people mm-hmm. are going through, and it would be really interesting to, te- to hear about what people are turning to for comfort during mm-hmm. this time. But also, like, we're, we're so open with our themes, like it could be also interpreted, like, out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. too, That's true. in that way. That's true.
1: Yeah, because we had this idea when we were in Seattle, I think. We wrote yeah. down the comfort issue and uh, did not know that we would end up working on it in a pandemic. No. <laughs> but uh, it's a good time, I think. Yeah. 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 That was something yeah. too that like when
2: we first started the magazine years ago, we just wrote out this long list of themes. Mm-hmm. And I think with our last issue we ran out of we were done with the list. Yeah. So we had to come up with a whole other new list. And yeah. just, you know, we didn't know that comfort would line like
1: you said, yeah. line up with this time. <laughs> line up but, so well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think we think it'll be fitting. Hopefully it'll be something cathartic for our contributors to to work through. Yeah. Because was like a quarantine issues too on the nose, no, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> don't want to jump. I can't imagine how many Oh shoot. Sorry. <laughs> how many magazines and brands are going to end up having COVID centered issues and episodes and all that. And we're like, we don't really need to do that. So, no.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I, have you guys seen that, um, this is great kind of super cut video of like all of these COVID ads. It's like in these uncertain times, it's just like a thousand <laughs> yeah. times. Oh my
1: goodness. It's funny. Yeah. We went through that whole thing too, with everyone emailing, you know, being like, uh, Home Depot cares about you during COVID. <laughs> and now it's like, uh, Target loves black people. It's like, okay, <laughs> what's going to be the next round of corporate messaging about our social crises? Huh? Yeah, or
2: emails same. emails from people are like, I hope this finds you well. Yeah. This email did not find me well. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm, no. I'm struggling right yeah. now.
1: We were watching uh, John Oliver and he was talking about some email that a guy ended with, let's both get on with our miserable yeah. lives. It's like Yeah. That's pretty spot on.
2: <laughs> or I love I mean, I love the um that article that came out recently with the, the heads of this Japanese theme park, like they didn't want people to scream on the roller coaster because it would spread COVID. So they asked people to please scream in your heart. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's what we've that's been a, doing too. <Yep>.
1: We're all wow. screaming in our hearts right yeah. now. <laughs> lots, of, lots of great stuff coming out like
0: that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that both of you seem to be keeping positivity and, and comfort alive in all your work. I'm excited for this new issue. You know, I'd love to get to our quick closer questions if, you, yeah. if y'all are ready. Sure. Uh, first one is, is there anything you would encourage folks listening to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time?
1: I think <sighs> I would tell people really look at, really look at what you're consuming and who's making it you know, Mm -hmm. because you, there was a really great breakdown of that article in, uh, I think it's the New York Times about fruit in Thailand, you know, that was presented very much as, as fact and as objective, as an objective piece of reporting. Um, And when you break it down, it really wasn't. And I think that that's something that's really important for people to think about when they're consuming anything, you know, is what, who's telling you this, what is their motive or not, you know, but just where is it coming from and why is, why is it the way it is? You know, critically examine that stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, I work in publishing uh, also. And I, I think about like every year, these like these lists of the, the hottest books of the summer, this, that, this, I, I'm looking at these lists constantly. I'm also looking at book, because I design book covers. I'm looking at book cover, the best book covers, whatever. And it's it's always a repetition of the same people the same publishers and there's so i work for a small independent publisher named i'm press and we publish amazing books and there's so many small independent magazines people doing pop-up like there's so many other people out there if you just depend on lists it's kind Mm -hmm. of just the same regurgitation Mm -hmm. and it takes more work but Mm -hmm. and a little bit more research time but i think it's worth it i think you can find some really amazing voices and people
0: yeah well said. Uh, what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try?
1: Hmm. Hmm. I started <laughs> drinking more smoothies. That's been nice. <laughs> uh, God. Uh, I,
2: I mean, I, I honestly don't want to sound really preachy about it, but uh, I cut out meat a couple of years yeah. ago and I completely understand that that's a big ask for a lot of people but like even just having like one day a week where you explore a, non, a non-meat a non dish I think is really important for like the environment for just like everything it touches so many different areas so I think that was a big change that I th- was really scared to make at first but has only been positive and, and not really changed my life in any negative way I think that's a cool thing to try for people yeah that's good
0: and if you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them?
2: Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to make dessert for them because, like I said, I love baking. I love making, like, a sweet treat.
1: I think I would probably make Burmese food for them, specifically the Onokaswe, which is a coconut noodle chicken soup that I make that uh, I grew up eating. And it's so comforting. It just makes me feel very happy and held (laughs) so I think that's one of my most loving dishes that I could make for someone
0: amazing and what ingredient could you not live without
1: garlic oh I was gonna say like flour oh I I couldn't live without (laughs) I would die without bread but no yeah garlic oh yeah really difficult too well, I just think about,
2: like, every dish I, like, every savory, like, dinner, oh, yeah. where I always put, like, garlic in it. It's, like, one
1: clove, and I'm, like, more like six. Clove. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More <laughs> than one like yeah. clove. Yeah. Garlic's, but, garlic's pretty clutch.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of hardcore cooks have that same, uh, I almost call it, like, the garlic laugh. Like, yeah. when you read how much garlic the recipe calls for, you're just like, ha, amateurs. <laughs>
2: yeah, more. fools. <laughs> <false. Yeah. laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. And what is your least favorite thing to waste?
1: Hmm. Mm, food. And water. I feel very bad wasting water,
2: oh yeah, our grandma our grandma our little oh. British grandma has like four freezers, yeah. she never wastes anything, especially food, mm-hmm. constantly she reuses her tea bags, <laughs> so I think.
1: That we're not definitely. as extre-
2: yeah, we're not as extreme as her, but we definitely have through both our dads yeah. who have gotten it from her. Like mm-hmm. I think we we have this kind of like don't don't put this to waste. Yeah.
1: No, my mm-hmm. partner says he's afraid to open our freezer because it's like Tetris in there with like all of the weird little bits and bobs that I've wrapped up and tucked away, and then we'll never probably use. She uses all of it. I i'm still not good at that part but yeah, yeah i think it's hard yeah wasting food and then and then wasting water in the bay area and in monterey they were we were constantly in a drought so i was always just made hyper aware of leaving the faucet running or anything like that so that's also something i hate hate, hate wasting mm-hmm. yeah
0: and what is your go-to karaoke song <laughs>
1: I'm
2: way too insecure to do karaoke. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm being 100% honest. I, have, yeah. I haven't done karaoke but since I was like nine or 10 years old. I'm too afraid.
0: What what about uh, t- to sing while you do dishes by yourself?
2: Uh, well, actually, you know what? I have thought of if if I were to sing, there was one time where people were doing karaoke and I was gathering up the courage to sing Torn by Natalie and Bruglia, yes. And then someone <laughs> went up and sang Torn. And I was like, God, I Damn it. <laughs> you should have just
1: gone up and taken that mic. I know.
2: <laughs> it was like, I was getting the courage
1: to, to do it. And then someone took it from me. That's funny. Um, mine is super stereotypical, but I, in college, my friends had, I think, rock band, which is the one where you could sing and play all the instruments. So I just got really used to singing um, Don't Stop Believing. And was <laughs> like, I love like my power ballad. Mm-hmm. I love that. So that's that one. Or I'll do um, some uh, Johnny Cash.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: Don't Stop Believing It's hard. The, the vocal range in that song is crazy. Oh,
2: Jesse can sing, though. She can sing. A,
1: yeah. a braver soul and more talented singer than I. <laughs> it's fun because you just kind of yell it and then a lot of other people get into it anyway. so most of the time if you blow it. Oh, it's yeah. everyone so drunk. Like, yeah. Do it when everyone's drunk. Yeah. It's harder to do. Uh, like, I know so many people do, um, what's the... American Pie song. I can't remember the actual name of it. yeah. Because they're like, they know the chorus, but then the rest of the song is just (laughs) slow and it's so awkward. So it's like, you just got to go with a power punch. Just go for for that power ballad. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: uh, who is somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them?
1: I feel like I've gone through a period recently where a lot of the people that I kind of... Admired from a distance, or you know, abstractly admired, have been brought down to a level from which I don't admire them anymore. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Like I would have said that I used to admire Peter Meehan. Um, I admired Anthony Bourdain, Mm -hmm. Um, but now it's sort of like I, I admire a lot of the folks within our community. I mean, I'll say I admire Andrea Newen. I love her cookbooks. I love what she's done in terms of sort of opening up Vietnamese food to the world. She's so good at being on social media and making things accessible and interacting with everyone. And she's also just so nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have met her a couple times at, you know, food events and stuff, and I've DM'd her with questions about things, and she's just really a really great person that's also writing really awesome stuff about food and making really great cookbooks. So I really admire her.
2: Yeah, I I, I feel like I have the same answer as Jesse. We're like looking up to someone so much and then kind of realizing that you shouldn't put someone on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. But there's some illustrators that like Jillian Tamaki, who has just, I, I remember meeting her when I was really young and she has just consistently been putting her work into so many different avenues. Like now she's embroidering her work and I know it's like crazy. So cool. I wouldn't have ever, and it looks so good. I, I She's just constantly experimenting and she has done some really amazing graphic novels and she does editorial illustrate. She's just so many, I, I admire her too. Cause I've always wanted to do a graphic novel, but it's so hard. And yeah. And she kind of has like the career that I aspire, I aspire yeah. to.
1: Yeah. I think I just, we just have so many, there's just so many people I know in my day-to-day life that I'm so impressed with now. And I don't think I ever would have recognized before that I admired them. I think I would have just been like, they're so cool, but I can look at our friends, Ken and Michelle, who run now serving a cookbook store here in LA and they're amazing. i so admire all the work they do, you know, in terms of creating this incredible community around cookbooks and giving authors the space to come in and have all kinds of discussions and dialogue. And it's, That's, that's incredible. I think there's just so many people in our day-to-day lives that are doing such incredible work that I admire now so much more than I think I, you know, previously admired like a celebrity or food celebrity or something like that. You know, I can look at these people face-to-face and see the incredible tangible work they're doing and really be moved by that.
2: Yeah. To all the people that are starting their own business, like doing all of that, Mm -hmm. constantly amazed.
1: Absolutely.
0: And uh, finally here, what are you grateful for this week?
2: Oh man.
1: This interview. (laughs) 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 Um, What am I grateful for Uh, this week? This This has been a tough one. Yeah. I think it's hard too, because I would say I'm grateful for how our magazine has been received we've had this issue has done really well but i feel i constantly feel i think guilty for being like i'm glad of how well our magazine is doing or i'm glad about how well even i'm doing professionally like my food pop up and stuff you know when there's so many terrible things happening and so many people not having a great week or a great month you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: sorry to be a downer
0: No, <laughs> oh, it's it's a real struggle
1: yeah, but I mean, I am really grateful for how well this issue is doing. I'm grateful for how happy it seems like our contributors are. You know, it's super exciting when they get the finished product in their hands and get to really see.
2: Yeah, we got a really nice email this week from uh, someone who was interviewed in this latest issue and she wrote, like, she wrote really like way too nice an email for us. Yeah. And it, it, I think that's what I'm grateful for this week. It was very yeah, nice to that's read. True. That was a really nice email. Maybe also iced coffee. Yeah. <laughs> That's
1: right.
2: <true. laughs> yeah. Getting me through the week. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Uh, what a lovely note to end on. Well, Jaya and Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Uh,
2: social media. You can follow us on Instagram at Compound Buttermag. Um, you can check out our website, compound butter.com. Yeah.
1: We've got our own accounts too that I think are linked in.
2: Yeah, they're Hot linked letters. in our bio.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, listen to this podcast. Yeah, listen to this <laughs> podcast, hear more <laughs> about it.
0: Well, plugging people at the end of the episode.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you that's the way it's the- done, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You can learn more about us in the thing you just experienced.
1: Good job. Well, you already did the work. So there you go.
0: Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes of this episode, which will live on our new content site, thewholecarrot.com. So be sure to check that out. Jaya and Jesse, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having us.